Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? We got an interesting email this week. And it was from a woman who said, Carol, I've been listening to your podcast and reading your book, Help Her Heal. I know the book is for my husband, but I'm reading it too. You see, my husband had his 9-11 about seven years ago, and I've seen changes in growth with him. I have, especially when we have really grown emotional intimacy. However, lately, things have been different. Um, he, he is going long periods of time without sexually acting out with porn and masturbation. But I'll tell you what, Carol. He doesn't seem to be working his program much. He's on bipolar and has been on medicine for it. And I'm struggling with being around him because each time he acts out, he falls into the anger and depression part for a few months. He becomes angry because of what he did. And he also goes into the victim mode. Now, I know I said that he's in good recovery. And he does have long periods of time when he's had no desire to act out either. Unfortunately, there have been many, many periods with slips. Okay, so I asked him after the last time to move out of the house for a few months so I could heal and figure out if I wanted to work on the marriage. He's currently going to 90 meetings in 90 days, and he's seen his counselor that deals with the sexual addiction. His his counselor has asked me to please stay in the counseling session as well. And my husband prefers that I'm there. The counselor believes he processes things when I'm there. 
However, I am triggered when he says he's not getting anything out of the 90 days of my 90 meetings. I also asked him if he's learning anything from reading your book, Help Her Heal. And he says, not, not really, not much. Not much I already didn't know. So do you think there's any help for recovering sex addicts with bipolar depression who is seemingly disinterested in the help that he's been given? I don't think he's in a good frame of mind to even process what he's learning because of that bipolar. I don't know, Carol. He's struggling because he has no friends. Nobody wants to do anything with him. And he doesn't reach out to other men. There's not that fellowship you talk about. He does state that he wants to be together and work on the marriage. But when he says things like, I don't get anything out of the meetings or I'm not learning anything from the books, I don't know. It doesn't seem like he's really understanding my relational trauma. So is there anything you could advise me for somebody with bipolar? Do you think that's what's affecting his ability to recover? And I won't give you her name. I will call her Susan. And I want to say to Susan, you know, Susan, you've been through a lot. And it sounds like he's had some difficulties. He's trying, but he gets burned out. And I meet a lot of uh, sex addicts who do have that tendency. And certainly if they have bipolar depression, they're struggling with a variety of things. So the first thing I would ask you to do is to consult with somebody who understands bipolar depression and understands addiction or impulse control disorder. I know that's going to take some time, but that's what I believe the two of you need because it's got to be frustrating for him. I certainly hear it's frustrating for you. And I know that you're hanging in there and you're doing a lot of good things and you're wanting a lot from him. And do you deserve it? Of course you do. Will you get it? I don't know. So only you can decide what you want to do. Now, you said you wanted him to move out of the house for a few months so you could heal and figure that out. And that's called a therapeutic separation. So I would also ask you to Google that so you can decide what boundaries and consequences you might need to put into place to take care of yourself. Because you've been dealing with this for five years, and that's a long time, but it typically takes with good recovery, three to five years to heal, both for him and for you. And it sounds like that there's enough um, there's enough of a roller coaster for you to be pretty worn out. So look up therapeutic separations. It doesn't mean separate to divorce. It means separate to determine what you need to heal. And explain to the counselor that you want him to get the support he needs while you're doing this. And you may decide that you want to stay in that counseling. You want to stay in that counseling to be kept abreast of what he's doing and to know how you might be able to help him. But it might be time for you to really focus in on yourself and intentional self-care is exactly what you need. Now, I get it. You know, one of the reasons that we have our expert on today is because he talked about the need for play, that oftentimes 
men that are going through all sorts of out-of-control sexual behavior actually have attachment issues. And that, in part, is because they don't know how to regulate their emotions. And there's a lot of what he calls negative affect scripts. So we're going to be talking to him today to figure out how can addicts work on more intentional self-care. And uh, I really enjoyed a dialogue that he participated in um, when he uh, was talking to us about how important it is for therapists to play as well as people with addiction. And so I look forward to speaking with our expert. Again, he really takes this serious. So, Michael Crocker, welcome to the show. Why, thank you, Carol. I'm happy to be on the show. Well, I know, and you made special effort to do that. It sounds like you have worked a long, hard day. So can we just talk a little bit about why this is a pretty passionate issue for you? I know that your colleague, Gary Katz, from the Center for Intimacy Recovery, recommended this book, Play, by Stuart Brown, and and. Now you're ordering it for all your groups. So tell me. <laughs> yep. What I you ordered, decide this I ordered is like 26 of them. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, so just share a little bit about yourself and then how you differentiate affect from feelings or emotions and how important affect is. Oh, great. I'd be happy to do that. You know, one of the, the, one of the ways I got into all of this was that, first of all, I've worked with people with sex addiction probably for like 25 years now. Um, and, and later in my career, I had already had my, uh, my social work degree and a master's degree in psychology. But later in my life, I decided, you know what, I want to go back and get a doctorate. And one of the things, in order to get this doctorate I needed to get from the University of Penn they required you to submit an idea that you had about what you felt you wanted to study. And my, my study was about sex addiction and attachment theory because I was convinced that, that it, from what I was seeing anecdotally that so many people were suffering with insecure attachment, many of the men, and I worked the majority of the, my clients are men, um, oftentimes were presenting with what I thought was an insecure avoidant attachment style. And so I decided to study it and study it scientifically. And I'm happy to say, because not, not all studies always result in this, is that I did discover that, that there was a high correlation between sex addiction, out-of-control sexual behavior, and insecure avoidant attachment styles in men. And so that got me really interested in learning more and more and more about attachment theory and how to use it in the treatment process. And so I started to actually do assessments on my, my, my uh, patients. I started to identify what their attachment style was. And one of the things I really discovered, which happened in the last, I'd say, five years, is that you can't do good attachment theory work if you don't understand affect theory. And if you think about it, um, Stan Tatkin has been talking about this, Dan Siegel, Alan Shore, Alex Katahakis, who I admire greatly, 
have been talking about sex addiction as an affect regulation disorder. And so I delved into understanding affect theory in the last five years with the help of a clinical supervisor. And then I really got to understanding how many of the men that I work with that are, that have sex addiction have no relationship to positive affect or minimal, let me say minimal relationship to positive affect or minimal relationship to the affect of enjoyment and interest and excitement. Mm -hmm. And what's so interesting about that is that um, John Bowlby was talking about this decades ago, saying that that many people with, with insecure attachment styles have a type of play that is usually ritualistic. It is not the type of play that creates a... Um, a lowered heart rate, a, uh, a sense of comfort. It's actually a type of play that's anxiety-producing. And then I also remember reading, when I was reading a lot of Patrick Carnes in the uh, late 80s and the early 90s, Patrick Carnes talked about how so many of these men also struggled with their relationship to play and that their play was eroticized and that that was part of the dilemma. And, and if you think about it, and then I'll tell you a little bit about the difference between affects and feelings and so on. When you think about it, in so many of the programs, SBA or SLAA or SAA, the whole idea of the outer circle or the third column and how we have to bring in experiences of enjoyment and connection and interest and excitement if we are, if we are to have long-term recovery. And if we don't have that, then the risk of slips and relapse is very, very high. And that's how I got really, and Gary Katz recommending this book. And then I, uh, once I read it, I was like, he, Stuart Brown was talking about affect theory and how to, how to amplify positive affect in the lives of our patients. And that that, in many ways, he didn't use this language, but that in many ways can create long-term recovery and better relationships. Yeah, now let me just ask you, for our listening audience that may be unclear about affect theory or attachment disorders, let's walk back mm-hmm. for a second because what you Great. noticed was that people with attachment disorders also and addictions had affect regulation problems and they had an affect issue. So let's talk about attachment for a minute because you talked about a certain type of attachment and you called that did you say it was the dismissive attachment uh, disorder? I've, said, I've actually said that in some of my writing, but, uh, but what, I just, what I said to you was insecure avoidant. But I will tell you that it's oftentimes a insecure avoidant dismissive style. And there's, there, of course, there are different um, avoidance styles, but dismissive right. tends to be what I see the most. And it's the type of person okay, now that... Okay, explain that in layman's terms. What would a wife or a husband perhaps see with their spouse? It's usually someone, and this was also mm-hmm. interesting in my study, it's usually someone that has come from a past where there has been neglect. And as I put it when I talk to my couples that I work with, is that these men have developed an allergy to connection. So when, mm. when, they, experience, when they experience intimacy and connection, they have an allergic response, which oftentimes is based in fear. And so except that the person that has more of an avoidant style is much more defended against the, the anxiety and the fear. So you don't see it. 
You just, what you do see is them pushing their partners away and choosing, choosing, yeah, choosing either commercial sex or choosing um, uh, the use of pornography or choosing casual sex as a replacement because of the fears of what it means to get close to someone. And so that is so much about what attachment theory is trying to address is the attachment anxieties that exist underneath those defenses. And I always use the allergy metaphor because I say, you know, back in the day when they used to treat allergies by shooting you with a little bit of what you're allergic to, that's what, mm-hmm. thera- that's what therapy is and good couples therapy is, is how do you help the, the partner to be able to embrace and tolerate intimacy where he's become allergic to it because of the, the experience of neglect and sometimes abuse in their childhood. Got it. That makes total sense. And I'm sure a lot of women especially feel that rejection or that inability to connect and they can't figure out what's wrong with them when really it's not about them at all. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. They're just the recipients Mm -hmm. of feeling pushed away and the pain of feeling rejected. And they're, and they're, they're one of the things that I talk about with their partners, they're, they're the men that I work with is that they're, oftentimes socialized in many ways out of their affects and their feeling states. Like they, there's, there's a number of studies that have shown that infant boys are actually more emotional than, than infant girls. But by the age three or four, it's a complete turnaround. They Hmm. start to, they start to manifest as being shut down. And so they don't, they don't learn to use their relate, their uh, emotions relationally. They tend, you know, they, there's even videos that were done by, I think it was uh, a guy named Pollock, where um, they videotaped the way that parents were with their boys versus their little girls. And with their little boys, when they started to express emotion, they had a tendency to want to distract the, the little boy, give him a toy, give him some game to play with, rather than mirror the feeling back to them so that, that they can get more tuned in to to what they feel. And so, so many of the men I work with, you ask them what they're feeling. What do they say? I'm stressed. That's, or they say, I don't know. Or they tell you what they think. And so I have now, now felt that the, the crusade in my work is to get these men to know what they feel. And affect theory is the ideal theory to help them with this. Okay, so now let me ask you another question because, again, in layman's terms, how do you actually differentiate affect from feelings from emotions? I mean, those are three very important concepts. Yeah, yeah, and it's my favorite part of um, affect theory is I explain, and this is what I've been doing with my men's groups these days, is I explain that to my men that affect, are biological. They're wired into our body and they give us signals in order to figure out what we need, what we want, um, what we, how we need to engage the world. And that immediately depathologized the ideas of feelings for them. So I explained that affects are the biology, feelings are the awareness of the affect, and they were all, there's, there's I think nine different affects that that um, uh, Tompkins uh, came up with in terms of affect theory, um, the, 
the, the founder of affect theory uh, who wrote like many, many pages about this. But he said if, that affects are biological, feelings are the conscious awareness, what, what um, attachment theorists would call reflective function, you know, having that mindfulness, that awareness of the feeling. And that emotions, this is part I love, is that affects are biological, emotions are biographical. So if you've had, if you come from a family where the, the affect that has been the most common in the family is, let's say, distress, or let's say anger, or let's say shame, then that's what their, their emotional life becomes, it has a biographical quality to it. And if you help them understand, if you help these men understand that they have these scripts, these, these bi- biographical scripts of emotion, of either distress or anxiety or sadness or anger, then you can help them to understand that they have tried to create a way to, to escape from the, the negative affect script, the negative emotion script. And that that's part of what they've been doing with their sexual acting out is they've been trying to get out of it, get out of that script, get out of that negativity. I have like one guy that has all this anxiety about finances and security because he has this biography that had to do with his father losing his job and, and them going from being relatively comfortable to then poor. So he's got that script of anxiety and that had a lot to do with his sexual acting out that every time he had a worry about finances, he would immediately get triggered and then try to escape it through various types of sexual acting out. And my, my, my feelings are if you do not help the patient, the client, to identify the affect script, then the risk, again, of relapse and slips is very, very high. But if you help them and you help them identify it, you listen closely and you listen closely for what that emotional script is, then you can start to get them to move away from the negative affects into more positive affects. But as I say to my yeah, patients when they, when they come in, I always say, I'm very interested in your top-line behaviors, meaning what are those behaviors going to be that are going to bring interest, excitement, and joy into your life if we're going to have long-term recovery. And so what might they say if, if they're going to have long-term recovery? Well, they might start connecting the, the, the dots and realizing that there's themes, that they'll start to identify that they actually have a, there's an aff, almost like an affect of choice, but it's really not of choice. It's actually more about it being familiar. So they keep creating situations to have that affect. And so they start to dismantle that um, and, and start to understand it in a way that they can. I had one patient calling it decoding. He's like, you've helped me decode my affects and my emotions. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I do, is that I'm trying to help you to understand what it is that you're trying to escape from. And oftentimes, I, I will say this, Carol, is that I've seen that one of the, the probably the most primary affect scripts is shame. These people have been shamed in some way, some manner, some form. Sometimes it's a shame that came from the parents that's never been dealt with because of their own relationship to shame. And so as we know, a lot of practitioners call this carried shame. 
is that they, they, they put shame onto their kids, and then their kids end up acting it out later on, on in their lives. And so to decode and to dismantle the, the affect script is the first step. And then the second step gets into the how can we find fun and, and play and enjoyment in your life. Um, and that part to me is the part that for a good period of my practice, I wasn't paying as much attention to. Like I kind of, it was really the uh, Gary Katz recommending this book and my, my studying affect theory in a much closer way that got me thinking I've got to work very diligently with my clients to help them create a play program, a positive affect program, because that's where the long-term recovery comes in. And well, that makes a lot of sense. How exciting yeah. for you to have studied this and then to see these scripts and to help them to differentiate and then to incorporate less ritualistic play and yes. that, as you called it, outer circle behavior that's more relational and more fun-loving mm-hmm. and spontaneous. Mm-hmm. So, so tell me, you know, in your writing – You've certainly leaned towards the importance of play. Now, mm-hmm. how do you see the link? What is the link between the kind of play you were talking about before and process addictions? Yes, I, I can. I, it's it's one of the things that has become clear to me is that so many people with process addictions. So whether it be work or it's. Um, or it's spending, or it is sex, or it is so many of the other types of process addictions that we see, that these are people that completely lack a sense of play in their lives, that never had that, mm. that, those periods of time in their life where they completely can get lost in themselves and be in a flow, and that, if, and that that is part of the repair that has to be done in the treatment, that they need to be helped to find whatever that play is. Many times you ask these people, like, what, tell me, tell me what, what really gets you going. What are you really interested in? And, and what kind of hobbies did you have as a kid? And how did you, how did you escape? And sadly, so many of them, the way that they found escape was sex. So many of my mm-hmm. patients, it was sex, it was workaholism, it was like trying to make money, it was, it was about the materialism of the world, and, and, and they never had that, that, that point in their lives where they discovered that they wanted to, you know, swim or collect seashells or like, you know, do, to do the things that so many other people that don't have process addictions find so easy in their lives. And so it becomes one of these... Um, it's almost like a, uh, an expedition where I have to really work with them to try and find what it is that really makes them curious and really helps them to feel interested and excited about life. And like I had one guy that I couldn't get sober to save my life. It was so hard until he became, he started to do uh, skydiving. <laughs> and he, that's when he got sober. And then he became an instructor. And then he, like, it was amazing. It took me, it took years before we discovered this because he had never had a place where he could just escape from the pressures of his life. And for him, 
that was that was really exciting. And then to teach other people how to do it, got to be even more exciting. So because it well, and again, you're pointing out nurturing. somebody, yeah, nurturing, and and he, and it also was that adrenaline high. You know, we talk yeah. about so many sex addicts having the need for adrenaline rushes, but this was mm-hmm. a healthy one that he mm-hmm. then created. Mm-hmm. I mean, he made it relational. Yeah. Um, and that that all worked. Yeah, and that's a really important point, Carol, is that he made it relational. He didn't just keep it to himself. He actually loved being an instructor. And it was so and again, like I said, he was he was relentless as someone that was engaging in sex addiction and to see the change in him was so exciting and it didn't just stop there. Like he found other interests. He started to get interested in sailing and there were other things. So, so it was, it was the beginning for him. I think he needed something that was very adrenaline based based on the way that he would sexually act out was very adrenaline based because he would oftentimes it was sneaky and he was trying to get away with things. And he was like, you know, you know how all that excitement gets played into the actual sexual acting out. Um, but, but for him to have started off with something that was a little bit more adrenaline-based and then to move into mm-hmm. things that were a little bit more moderate, it was, it, he had, he's been sober for easily 10 years now. Wow. Which I'm very happy wow. about. <laughs> well, absolutely. And so let me just ask you a couple of clarifying questions. Um, so you really sit with a client and you ask them things that help them to identify what brings about a sense of joy or enthusiasm or mm-hmm. excitement. I mean, mm-hmm. those are kind of the key concepts to help them figure out what might they pursue to play. Right. Exactly. And I'm more directive about it. Well, maybe directive is not the right word. I'm more explicit about it. So I, like I used to, I was trained originally in object relations theory and it was more psychoanalytic and I was, I was less active. And now I'm like, I go for it. I try to figure out what, what the negative affects are that they're suffering with. And I try to figure out what the positive affects are that they, they, uh, they have not let themselves really know for themselves. And so I'm very, very um, explicit in my questioning and my assessment. I do a shame, I do a compass of shame survey, which is something that this guy Donald Nathanson came up with, which helps people to identify how their shame manifests. I do trauma symptom in- inventories by John Breer, which helps people to understand how their trauma has manifested affectually. And so I'm much more, I'm a, I'm a lot more active and explicit with my patients these days because I really want them to have the benefits of long-term recovery. And what I, one of the things I created was a list of the different affects and how they show up in the body and what they imply in terms of what the need is interpersonally, because I'm trying to get these men to think about using their feeling states relationally not, you know, these men are so toxically self-sufficient and so defensively autonomous and so avoidant of being interdependent that I am trying to get them to realize that your signal of, of an affect is a signal of a need 
and it's a relational need, and we need to help you become more relational. And that's why I'm also a big believer in, in combined uh, therapy of doing individual and group. Because group allows yeah, I, I so much more, that. right? Yeah, group allows right. so much more um, practice of what it means to ask for what you need. And I explained to my group members that they have something what um, uh, um, a theorist named Kantian called disuse atrophy, where they have, they have not been able to practice skills that are relational because they found a self-sufficient way to deal with their affects early on. And that was their solution to their problem, but that problem, that solution has now become a problem. And now we have to find well, something and I else. Would, I would think, too, that by practicing this in group and role modeling what it looks like and having others role model that, you know, I believe that what happens in the group happens outside of the group so that this would then ripple into their relationship with their kids, with their wives. Oh, exactly. And, yeah. Exactly. So That's, let me ask. So I, say them, I say to them that the microcosm of the group is, is, is going to be something that you're going to be able to bring into the macrocosm of your life. Mm, I so like that. The more we, yeah, the more we practice it in here, the more we stay in the here and now, the more we check in with what, what you're feeling, the more we try to identify what that feeling is and what that need is, the more you're going to be able to do it at home with your wife, with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends, with people at work. And, and I see the benefits. I see it works. Yeah, when you work it, it does work. And again, since they had such a deficit so early on and had such a link to the negative scripts, you really have to peel away each layer, don't you, to, to excavate, oh, to get totally. them to, to work through it. Yeah. Oh, yes. There's so, no yeah. question about it. And it's so wonderful How to long? see it at work in groups like, or in individual or both. It's so wonderful to see. Yeah, and so I think you heard me say right at, before you came on that, you know, somebody's brain takes anywhere from three to five years just to to re-sync um, into new neurocircuitry. Well, how long Correct. do you think this kind of recovery takes for somebody that has those negative scripts and has that affect issue? Yeah, to see it take place, I, I like I have really good evidence now because I, I have like, three groups, right? Actually, four groups. And um, uh, one we just started this past week, but the other three existed prior to that. And I have found, so I have this one men's group that started around three and a half years ago. I'm only seeing the change now. It took, I mean, I've started to see like little micro changes in the in probably a year or two ago, but but the real Deeper, more embedded changes are only happening now, and we're talking about three and a half, four years. And they're, they're and it's only now that they're being less allergic. I love to use that word, allergic to the connection with the other group members. And it's only now that that they're beginning to actually identify a need related to the feeling state. And it's taken that long, but I. 
I've also become aware of the fact I've, I've needed to be patient <laughs> because I want these things to move on quicker because of my care and my desire for my patients to not destroy themselves or their lives or their work lives or their relationships and so on. So it's, it's been a lot about taking a deep breath and allowing myself my own mindfulness of, okay, this is, we're working on this and we're working on it on a weekly basis through combined treatment. And I am beginning to see the changes now. I have another group that's been together for 15 years. They're way beyond because they've done such great work and there's such safety in the room. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting um, challenge for us therapists to deal with our own impatience <laughs> and our own affects. So. Well, absolutely. And I know that when you initially wrote this dialogue to our listserv of over 1,600 CSATs, you really encouraged us to remember to play. And there is no doubt that this is such dark, heavy work, working with addicts or working with couples or Mm -hmm. working with partners, Mm -hmm. that, you know, it can be all-encompassing, and we have to practice playing. You know, I just got off of a vacation, and it was the 22nd annual Girls' Week at the Lake. I am married, but I had about 12 women in, and we skied, and we talked, and we made jewelry, <laughs> and, you know, and we floated, and we rested, and we read, and it was really a rejuvenation as well Wonderful. as, yeah, an opportunity. Eckhart Tolle says that the key to good mental health is three things. He says, if you can surrender to what is, no matter what, what is, is. And boy, isn't mm-hmm. that part of the the program? And then, oh, yeah, for sure. if you can, if you can enjoy life, that's the second principle. And then the third principle he talks about is enthusiasm. If you can have enthusiasm for life. Oh, and I so love that. This, yeah, it really keys into what you're saying because that's all about play. Yes. Yes, and you know what? One of the things that the book um, by Stuart Brown uh, speaks to so wonderfully is how can you incorporate play into your work? And so I I have found myself in the last couple of years, even before I read this book, being more playful with my clients in order to model it, both in group and in individual. But the other thing, and that speaks to your vacation, is that my begin my development of this project. It's called the, the Sexuality Attachment and Trauma Project. I've discovered over time that it, it wasn't about expanding service. I mean, on some level, it was about expanding services, but it wasn't about the economics of that. It was about creating community. And so I have like six other therapists that I sit with once a week. In, a, in what I call a group, uh, it's called uh, a consultation group. I do not call it a supervision group because I learn as much from them as they do from me. And it is a community of fun-loving, innovative, creative psychotherapists that has changed my relationship to this career. Otherwise, I would have left it. It was so toxic for me at times and so um, 
painful to see the suffering of so many of my patients and so many of their wives and so many of their spouses and so many of their family members. You know, I even did like disclosures with, with uh, adult children, family members. It was just so painful that I was like, I'm not sure I'm going to last. I, th- I thought I was going to like totally burn out. And I was so close to burning out. And then I, did, and then I went back to school and I created the SAP project. And the SAP project is, is about people coming together and being creative. We have, we have uh, whiteboards in my office, so we're constantly putting together ideas and theories, and it's all about enthusiasm, all about enthusiasm. Like, let's enter into this work in a way that's creative and innovative and um, opens up our – and is expansive in our thinking. And I have a good group. They are a good group of people <laughs> that make me very happy. And so I've created a community for myself here at the SAP Project with very bright therapists that are fun. And, in fact, two of them have done improv prior to becoming therapists. I did a little acting in my day. You know, I have another one that's, you know, everyone's got a good sense of humor. You must have that in this work. It's to, otherwise, you'll burn out and stop doing it. Well, absolutely, and you've really, you've really made it your own. I mean, you've created it. You've created an awareness. You've made it happen for your clients. You've made it happen for yourself, and you've learned how to balance that life. Yes. And uh, that is so, so important. So how can people get a hold of you? If they, do you have a website? How, how would somebody oh, find yeah. out more yeah, about you and your yeah. work? Yeah, my, the website is... Uh, is sexualityproject.org, and that's got me and all my my affiliates on there, and it, it describes how we think about um, sexual addiction, how we think about couples therapy, how we think about group therapy. It's got some blogs in there, and if they just go to sexualityproject.org, they'll find all of us, and. Um, and we're playing here in New York City, so <laughs> like that's what we're all about. And I and like I said, I've got my colleagues are just wonderful. I love working with them, and um, that would be great. I mean, please feel free to share that with the audience. Um, we actually just put, I we just put together a new website. We we modified it, and the person that that did it for us has this knack of being able to talk with you and find out exactly what it is that's in your personality that brought you to this work. And it's so, it's a, it's different. It's a different type of website. It's personal, but personal in a way that's boundaried, but, but very about our personalities. So I think, I think it'd be fun for people to take a look and see what they learn about us. Absolutely. And I love that, that again, you're personalizing things because when you said that you initially did psychoanalytic therapy, so for our listening audience that may not know, psychoanalytic therapy is very serious. It's very yeah. reflective. There's not a lot yeah. of direction. It is yeah. you really being the container for them as they discover what their issues are. And for you right. to have said directive and then kind of change that, you're really modeling good, healthy, solid behavior, and, and our addicts need to see that. 
Yes. And and you know you said you do disclose you did disclosures with families with kids and yeah. families. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, adult children in families. And, you know, and like I said, it was like for a period of time without the sense of my own community here in the, in New York of, of, of clinicians that are doing this work, it was, there was a period of time where I was like, I'm going to leave and I'm going to go into academia or I'm going to like work at Starbucks. I mean, I, I just was like exhausted from it. But once I created the community and started to, to, work with different colleagues about writing different types of papers and coming up with different ideas and coming up with a different model of doing couples therapy. We do, we do a conjoined couples therapy, me and my colleague, Kelly Moylan. Kelly will see the partner. I'll see the partner with the, the sex addiction. And then the four of us meet every other week. Makes a huge difference. I'm not alone in the room with the couple anymore. I'm actually with a colleague yeah. that understands this, and it makes a difference. It, to not be alone in this work is essential. It's essential. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, we, we, we're finding our way, and we're writing some interesting articles about it. And if, uh, you know, we have a, we have a um, what do they call that, a, a, mailing, a mailing list, if anyone's interested, they can let me know, and they can get copies of the articles that we've written. So we've gotten published in a, in a few different journals. We're doing a, an article right now that's called um, Connecting Loose Ends, uh, Connecting Psychoanalysis with Science, and really trying to help people understand why psychoanalytic theory just was so stuck in so many ways. And now it's beginning to loosen up because of affect theory and attachment theory and all these psycho, uh, these uh, social psychology ideas that are so related to, to the importance of the work that we do. Well, I know that you had reference in that dialogue about um, Esther Perel and Helen Fisher and the fact mm-hmm. that they are two notable um, theorists and Oh, they they noted the importance of novelty in relational and sexual health. Now, yes. tell me, what does that mean when you say couples must ensure that they have novelty in their lives? You you say that too many couples have a day to day, regimented schedule that doesn't leave room for that kind of novelty. So, say a little bit more about that. Yeah, and you know, I don't know if this is, if this is more about a selected sample based on my where I work. I'm in the I'm right in Midtown Manhattan, but I have to tell you that the couples that come to me have such regimented lifestyles that are just about all the activities that they have to get their children to, that they have to that they have to deal with day in and day out. They're usually uh, dual income couples. And what I hear from them is that, I mean, so different than what you had just described about your girls' week, uh, week vacation is like they don't, they don't do these things. They don't, they don't find time for vacation. They don't find time for novelty. They don't go to museums. They don't go to some whatever, whatever the exciting exotic vacation could be. And even if you can't afford an exciting, exotic vacation, they don't even go camping. You know, it's like they, they just don't do things, and they end up being in this place that is feeling like they're in a rut of boredom. 
and boredom is one is such a um, enemy when it comes to the issues of sex addiction, out of control behavior, and process addictions. And so, I am constantly assessing with the couples that I work with what is their relationship to play, what is their relationship to finding excitement and enjoyment, and and to really address the issues of what are mostly the urban couple that I work with and recognizing they don't even figure out like moments in which they can connect. They're so busy with all the things that they're doing and they don't recognize that that's where some of the dilemma started. Like Helen Fisher and Esther Perel will talk about how, how oftentimes a spouse will wander into an infidelity because of their search for novelty. So we must make sure that our couples and our families have novelty in their lives, that they're seeing new things and experiencing new things, and that, that they're doing it together and they're creating memories, memories that they can, that, that they can access in order to continue to feel the, the feelings of enjoyment and excitement because otherwise, they're, again, we put them at risk. If we don't address those issues directly, we put them at risk. And so I'm so very I, committed to doing those things these days. Well, and what I hear you saying is that it is, gosh, it's a um, balance between finding, stimulating, exciting, passionate things to participate in, and then making sure a part of that is relational and that you're, you're engaging with others, whether that's a, a family because you're married mm-hmm. and you have kids mm-hmm. or grandkids or mm-hmm. your family of choice, which so oftentimes I'm, I talk to my guys in group. I just had my group tonight and I'm like, don't just go camping by yourself or hiking by yourself. Have somebody in the fellowship to go with you, you know, gives you right. time to dialogue and learn about each other and, and feel that emotional link, that connection. Right. Right. That's, that's essential. And one of the things that I do with my clients right from the beginning is I, I try to combat their, as I put it before, their toxic self-sufficiency. They think that they should just do it on their own and figure it out on their, on their own. And I'm like, no, it's about we have, to, we have to expand the relationality, expand the way of connecting with people. And it's not just about making phone calls. It's about making plans. And it's about the, the necessity to have contact. And if we don't do that, again, we leave ourselves undernourished. I talk a lot about interpersonal uh, nourishment with my, uh, my patients. Like, I really want them to understand that it's actually, you know, the whole movement towards co-regulation, as I believe uh, Alex Katahakis puts it, is that the idea that you actually are not just trying to regulate yourself, you're actually co-regulating. You're looking for, for help from another, whether it be your, your spouse or it's a friend or a family member in which you feel comforted and connected and that, you, that we have to do that mindfully and purposely. You know, like we can't just hope that that's going to happen. And especially with the with so many of the men I work with that are so socialized to to be um, overly independent, but they pay a huge price for that. And so that's that's really the focus, and that's why I do a lot of group work. 
I get that. And so as we end, is there anything else that you would like our listening audience to know that you believe can make a difference in their lives? Well, I guess I would I would ask all of them to really do a um, an inventory of what their relationship is to to positive affect, what their relationship is to enjoyment, to interest, to excitement, and for them to really think about the fact that we can't just have sexual recovery plans. We also have to have positive affect recovery plans. We, we have to have plans that are going to ensure that we're looking at how it is we're bringing that into our lives individually, into our lives as a couple, if you're, if you're married and in a relationship, or into our lives as a family, if you have children. And if you don't have children and you're not, you're not in, a, in a relationship, then how, do you, how are you bringing that into whatever community of people that you are part of? And if you're not part of a community of people, how are you going to get there? How are you going to find that? Because the people that are much more withdrawn and isolated, we know that they, they have found their way of trying to manage their affects through, unfortunately, use of pornography and more, more um, individual types or solo sexual types of activities. I just think that we need to expand it in order to have long-term recovery. So I, I say to everyone, take an inventory. I know that when I started reading these books on affect and reading the book on play, I started to do an inventory on my own relationship to play. When was it, when did, when did I feel the best? When was I in the, the, the most flow? And one simple answer for me is like the beach. <laughs> like I love the beach. I was raised on Long Island. I was raised by the beach. And so my return to the beach as an adult is like really brought me this sense of pleasure and excitement just to smell the air. And so everyone should do an uh, a inventory on what their relationship to play and enjoyment and excitement is. And hopefully replace, replace negative destructive behaviors with more positive behaviors. And I think that they'd find long-term recovery from that. And, and one last time, where would they go to be able to find a list of those kinds of things? Because I'm telling you, some well, of these people are really at a deficit. You're right. You're right. And you know what? That makes me think that one of the, one of the things that I'll do is I'll post some of the materials that I have put put together on my website and people will be, will be able to access it, including, including the, my list of affects, feelings, bodily experiences, and the needs that come along with that. And some of my PowerPoints that relate to um, the issue of affect, I'd be happy to do that. And if people just give me a few days, when when can we find that? (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, like, I would say, give me to the end of the weekend. So I'll have it. I'll have it up by Sunday. Okay. Well, I so appreciate you taking this time. It's late for both of us. We come on at ten instead of at nine, and your ability to connect is amazing, both in your writing, just writing to our listserv, and what you've shared with us tonight. So, Michael, it is Thanks, so Carol. good to get to know you. Keep 
keep us posted on the exciting work that you're doing, okay? I will. I will. And I really appreciate the opportunity. And even though it's late, I felt very awake for this. So I was very excited. So thank you. And thanks for accommodating me also, because I know that the scheduling thing became complicated. But thank you so much. I love this opportunity. All right. You take care, and we'll talk again soon. Good. Take care, Carol. Have fun. Make sure to play. Okay. Uh, Bye. Absolutely. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. Michael reminds us how important it is to play, and Dr. Cooper is an amazing authority on this, so please take his word for it and look at how you might integrate more play into your life. I kid you not, last week, I skied to the point of having an intercostal tear. I paddleboarded. I made jewelry. I read. I did do a little work, I must confess. I'm working on that Help Her Heal online course. And I had told myself I would have it done by the time vacation was um, here. And I didn't, so I kept at it. I'm still working on it. Um, probably won't have it done till mid-August. I always think I can do more than I can, but that's okay. I am a work hard, play hard kind of person. And what I know from Patrick Carnes is not only do we have to work hard, play hard, we also have to rest hard. So look at how you might put play into that. Make sure to look up his website. Let's take a look at the information that he has for us. And um, I will see you next week for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach. And you know what I always say. I do. There only is one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. We'll catch you next week. Take good care and um, play a little bit this week, would you? All right. Make it a good one.